Hey everyone, welcome to the 5 by your five-stop shop for quick-fire board game reviews. On this episode, Ruth blinds us with science in Newton, Meeple Lady runs the best tea shop in Taiwan in Bubble Tea, I fill up on bullheads with Six Nymphed, and we welcome our newest contributor, John Gonzalez, to the fold, where he hunts the hunter and raptor. But first, Mason forages in a fantastical forest in Friedman Friese's fabled fruit. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about fabled fruit. Rarely do I have any interest in discussing a game I didn't care for, but I think Fabled Fruit is worth my five minutes this week for a variety of reasons. Designer Friedman Fries is well known for a number of things. Having green hair and green box covers, being a relentless self-promoter, designing power grid, innovative mechanisms, all of his games having F titles, at least in German, and being wildly hit or miss in his prolific output of games over the last 25 years. Fabled Fruit is a miss for me, but if I'm being honest, I don't really care for him in general. I know that Power Grid is a ton of people's favorite game, but I haven't played it often enough to have much of an opinion. It seemed fine the couple of times I played it. It's not exactly my kind of thing, though. The Freeze games I do like are the solo game Friday, though I don't really have any desire to ever play it again, and Felix the Cat. People rave about Fearsome Floors and it looks cool, but I've never tried it. So what's up with Fabled Fruit? Well, it came out at Essen 2016, the year after 504, his $100 massively hyped, massively recombinational modular gamebook system that was supposed to revolutionize the way we viewed tabletop mechanisms and play experiences. Spoiler, it didn't, and it's going for $15 plus shipping on eBay these days. Honestly, not a bad deal just for the parts. But 504 is indicative of many of Fries's big ambitious ideas, of which Fabled Fruit is one. It's an idea that sounds really fascinating, that excites people, that consumers clamor to experience, and that ultimately sits on shelves unplayed and forgotten. I was highly interested in Fabled Fruit on its release, and very excited by the much-touted Fable system, a non-destructive twist on legacy games, which also haven't cornered the market I see, but more on that another time. Much like video games, the Fable system teaches the game as you go, and the game rules and actions change and expand, and become more complex as you play. In Fabled Fruit, this takes the form of players buying up cards that are also the locations and actions. As you buy cards, new cards come out and the possible actions expand. Once all the cards of one type are bought, that action is no longer available. The very large deck has 60 different action card sets in it, so the idea is that you play dozens and dozens of games until you complete the Fable by running through the whole deck. Which sounds like a really cool idea, right? Well, it would be if there was an arc? A narrative? Something? I don't know. A compelling reason to move through the deck other than, I wonder what card comes next. The reality is that yeah, a lot of the mechanisms do build off each other, but none of them are really that interesting or engaging. Freeze likes weird themes and so do I. In this one, you're jungle animals picking up fruit cards in order to buy juices, which are also the action cards. It's a straight up race though. Whoever buys five juices first wins the game. At its core, Fabled Fruit is just a cube pusher and a contract filler, which I usually love. And the first maybe 10 or 11 plays of this game were pretty cool. It was exciting to see what came next, but what came next kept disappointing us. We put Fabled Fruit aside for almost a year, and recently picked it back up as part of our new round of game purges. Though it's listed as two-player compatible, a significant number of action cards are either irrelevant or very boring without a full table of players. We played two games of it, our 12th and 13th, and before starting game 14, we both looked at each other and just laughed. I put the cards back in order, I packed it up, and put it on the sale pile. So we've gotten all we were going to get out of this game, but I do think there's something great someone else could do with the idea. In 2017, Freeze put out a series of fast-forward games, and we played one of them, Fear. Using kind of a similar idea to Fabled Fruit, the cards in the deck are in a particular order, and as you play, new rules are revealed to the players. I liked this implementation of the idea more, but it still wasn't enough to play through more than about half the game. 
The idea of starting cold from a deck of cards without needing to read any rules works really well in the unlock games, so there's got to be some good version out there of giving you the rules very slowly as you play, but Fabled Fruit definitely isn't it, and I don't think it's a game that anyone will bother to talk about in another five years. We discuss the churn and the hype here pretty frequently. The current model for the business of hobby games is such that publishers have leaned into rapid release cycles and novelty to move product. There's a new Fable game coming out in 2019 called Fire! Exclamation point. Some kind of card version of Space Invaders or whatever, I don't care. I'll take a pass on it, but I'm sure it will sell out at Essen for non-hardcore folks, that's the big German game fair every fall. But will anyone care in six months? For my hardcore folks, I guess the real question I'm asking is, what is the value in releasing forgettable games beyond the immediate financial compensation? I'm not saying I have an answer to this, but I do think it's a question you should ask yourself before you buy a game. Will I play this again six months from now is a strong rhetorical tool for saving your money and shelf space for well-vetted games of lasting value. So anyway, who should play Fabled Fruit? People who are hardcore Freedom and Freeze fans. People who like exploring a game system more than they like the experience of playing a game people who have at least a four-person regular light games group, and people who find a very cheap copy in the next couple of years and feel like mining the ideas in it for their own game designs. I give Fabled Fruit two out of five mythical juices made by wacky cartoon jungle friends. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here, talking about the game that became one of my favorite Christmas presents from last year. Set during the Age of Reason, Newton places two to four players in the roles of scholars competing to forge the most illustrious academic career. Published in 2018 by Simon, Nestore Mangoni and Simone Luciani's Midweight Design provides a comfortingly familiar play experience while not feeling like just another Euro. In Newton, players will play cards that represent one of five different actions, traveling around Europe's lecture circuit, teaching students, building a library of knowledge, improving their own skills, or simply working in order to earn coins to fund their other actions. But the magnitude of the action they get to take each turn depends on how many matching symbols already appear on their desk, whether permanently etched onto the drawer fronts or from cards already played during the round. Their cards might also provide bonus actions when played or provide book symbols used to complete the other actions. And buying better cards will let players expand their options. Buying multiple cards of the same type allows you to build up more powerful actions in the game, which is key to doing well. Trying to do everything in Newton spreads your resources too thin, so success will rely on figuring out what action or actions you want to focus on. Over the course of a full round, players get to play five cards to their desk, taking the associated actions. Each player also starts with a wild card that can represent any action when played, allowing for some extra flexibility. However, at the end of the round, one of the five cards they played will be tucked under their player board, with only its action symbol showing. This does add a permanent symbol to the desk that augments future actions of that type, but it removes the card from the player's hand taking away not only its ability to prompt an action, but also any bonus action or book symbols it provided. Having to tuck one of the cards you've used in the round, not just any card you have, also means that you can't keep using the same rotation of five cards, forcing players to adapt. It also means that you have to buy cards during the game by taking the lessons action, otherwise you'll find yourself running out of cards before a round ends, forcing you to sit and do nothing while others continue to take actions. At the end of each round, you'll have an income phase where players who've built up their libraries get to receive points and occasionally money. 
and for many players, this will be the points they mainly earn during the game. After that, cards are tucked, the available card display refreshes, and players take up the rest of their cards and start anew. After six rounds, the game ends, and then any players who made their way to endgame scoring spaces receive those points before a winner is determined. The variability of who gets points when leads to some interesting finishes in Newton. In many games I've played, you've had some players churning out points throughout those income phases, while others have not while focusing on endgame scoring. This makes for a really nail-biting final count as their points are added and we watch them draw closer to the leaders waiting to see if they've done enough to take it. The game has a variable setup, with the bonuses and locations on the travel and student boards randomized each time, along with any available endgame bonuses. But once everything's set up and you have your player board, which also comes with a randomized action symbol already on it, well then the only thing that changes throughout the game will be the cards available to purchase, which lets you plan a way to your heart's content. Sure, someone might take a small one-time bonus first, but otherwise Newton is a somewhat solitary experience, letting you concentrate on making the best use of your cards, and that's a reason why I love it. Newton is a midweight Euro game, and so as expected, there's a lot of beige in its presentation. But there's actually other colors. That's right, Atelier 198's illustrations and graphic designs have included the use of color and clean iconography that makes not only for a visually appealing presentation, but for one that helps ease play and learning. Now, I will admit that my copy was missing some of the green player's pieces, so if you ever play with me, there's going to be some odd substitutions on some of the tracks. But overall, everything is of decent quality, allowing for the game to be your unobstructed focus rather than strange production decisions. Newton feels very comforting and familiar, despite the fact that the action card system is a little different. I sit down to play and I know I'm going to be having an enjoyable hour and a half during which I'll be afforded the opportunity to pull off some combos that make me feel clever while navigating the puzzle of making the best use of today's unique setup. It's a great game that tends to draw my attention when I peruse my game shelves, and so I'm sure I'm still going to be playing it for years to come. So if you're a fan of Euro-style gameplay, and you're looking for something quick and comforting enough to play when your brain is not quite up to a Lacerda, well give it a go, and be sure to let me know what you think. When not hustling my apprentices up their training tracks, you can find me on Twitter, at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I love boba. Growing up in Los Angeles, we didn't say, let's go get coffee. We'd say, let's go get boba, also known as bubble tea in other parts of the world. For the unfamiliar, boba are marble-sized tapioca balls that you can order inside an accompanying drink, drinks such as milk teas, slushies, Thai iced teas, and coffee drinks. My personal favorite is Tara milk tea. So yummy. So you can imagine my excitement when I found out that Renegade Game Studios created a game this year called Bubble Tea, another real-time game by Aza Chen, complete with adorable animal artwork that he's known for. He's also the designer of one of my favorite games of 2017, Shiba Inu House. Bubble Tea is a 20-minute game for 1 to 5 players. The game comes with wooden dice, customer cards, tea-based card, moji-moji cards, which are these transparent coaster-sized square tiles used for layering, and a drink shaker. Just like when you order boba and they mix up your drink at the boba cafe, so will you, except with dice that picture drink ingredients drawn as cute animal characters. Characters such as the milk tea cow, the green tea frog, the tapioca dog, and the taro ball bear. Bubble tea is actually two games in one, which is a pleasant surprise. In both games, 
Players are trying to craft the best drinks and get the most victory points. The first game involves shaking up the dice in the plastic shaker. The current player places the dice inside the shaker, shakes them up, they flip over the shaker, the dice land on the table, and then everyone yells, one, two, three, go. Simultaneously, players are trying to match the tea base and ingredient shown on the dice by arranging and stacking the Moji Moji cards on their tea base card. This is far trickier than it sounds because the nine Moji Moji cards that each player has are all different, with various ingredients situated in different squares. The tea base cards are gridded, so you're arranging these cards in any orientation while ensuring the correct ingredients can be seen from a bird's eye view and ingredients don't sit outside the grid. When a player finishes their drink, they take the shaker lid and cover the dice. Players check to see if they made the drink correctly, and if they did, they gain a customer card. If that player didn't make the drink correctly, they lose a customer card, and the other players continue playing. The game ends when a player gets three customer cards. For the second game options, players are also simultaneously competing to complete their customer cards and gain victory points. In this game, you don't need the dice, just the shaker, which will sit in the middle of the table. Each player draws five customer cards and places one card of their choice face down in front of them. When everyone is ready, they all say, one, two, three, go, and flip over their chosen card. Just like in game one, players must arrange their transparent moji-moji cards on the correct tea base according to what their customer card is asking for. The first player to finish their drink grabs the shaker. Gameplay stops, and they check the player's drink to see if they made it correctly. If they did, flip over the customer card for victory points. The harder the drink, the more VPs it's worth. If the player incorrectly created their drink, the round continues until someone correctly makes their drink. At the end of the round, everyone passes the leftover cards in their hand to the player on the left. The game ends after five rounds when there are no more cards to pass. The players with the most points wins the game. Bubble tea is frantic, puzzly, and sometimes brain melty. But oh my goodness, it's so much fun. And I just love, love, love the theme. Seeing a mainstream board game company create a game about a possibly niche theme, but one that's been a major part of my life, just warms my heart. Bubble tea is perfect to bust out with your friends at the Boba Cafe, or when you need a quick filler for up to five people. The artwork is colorful and adorable, and having an actual shaker is just delightful, even if the dice can be a little bit loud when you're tossing them around in it. At a convention, that noise is fine, but when I'm at someone's house or at a more intimate game setting, I usually just hold my hand over the shaker's lid and shake up the dice that way. It's much less noisy. But overall, the noise doesn't matter too much because that action is such a small part of the game and more often than not, you're just looking at how to place that sugar monkey in that one sweet spot on your tea card. And that's Bubble Tea. Thanks, Renegade Game Studios, for sending me a copy of this game. This is Meepo Lady for the 5 by. And if you ever want to talk games over some taro milk tea boba, come find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meepo Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepoLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! The lowest five blocks of downtown Seattle are built on fill. When the city was founded, the ground under Seattle's current waterfront was smelly, muddy tide flats. Sections of the city were a few stories lower than the current street level, and during the Seattle Underground Tour, you get to see former storefronts which are now buried basement levels. 
While the city has done its best to shore things up over the last hundred years or so, the filler upon which that part of the city stands is notoriously sketchy, and if one of the fault lines surrounding Seattle ever unleashes a massive earthquake, its likely liquefaction will just swallow that whole part of town. It's a long-standing tradition to side-eye the composition of your average hot dog. What worries people the most, it seems, is the idea that their favorite tube meat is primarily composed of stomach linings and eyeballs. In reality, the ground-up animal bits share almost equal space with fillers like cereal binder, so even bad meat isn't really all meat. Many products make a point of advertising they don't contain fillers, so you can be sure your quote-unquote all-beef hot dog is more hooves and intestines than flour and oatmeal. Fillers, in general, have a bad reputation. Even the word filler now implies something which simply takes up space without thought to consequence. At best, fillers are devoid of substance or value. At worst, they're potentially actively harmful. That idea has infiltrated the minds of board gamers to the degree that filler has become a pejorative. On the entitled gamer scale of value assessments, filler now occupies a low rung just above mass market and below gateway. This attitude is, frankly, absurd. Fillers, like any other style of game, fall on a spectrum from terrible, like Cards Against Humanity or Phase 10, to amazing, like Six Nimmed, a 1994 card game published by Amigo Spiel and designed by the always astounding Wolfgang Kramer. You know, the guy behind industry flops like the, the Mask Trilogy and El, El Grande. Six Nymphed is just two poker decks mashed together, numbered, weirdly, from 1 to 104. Each card also hosts a number of bullheads used for scoring. The purpose behind this particular aesthetic choice escapes me, but it doesn't really matter because these symbols could be anything, and this just happens to be what they chose. In a round of Six Nymphed, everyone is dealt 10 cards. Four cards are laid out on the table to start the rows into which everyone will play. On each turn, players place one card from their hand face down in front of them, then everyone reveals simultaneously. Those cards are then added to the face-up rows in numerical order, following two rules. One, each card must be placed in ascending order in its destination row, and two, each card must be placed into the row with the smallest gap between it and the card at the end of the row. If you're forced to place your card in a row already containing five cards, you place all the cards in that row into your score pile and start a new row with the card you just played. You can also voluntarily scoop any row by playing a card lower in value than every present row, therefore having no legal placement at the end of an existing row. The kicker? You absolutely don't want cards. The object of Six Nymphed is to keep your score low. At the end of each round, when everyone's played all 10 of their cards, everyone counts up the bullheads in their score pile, adding that total to their running score. The game ends when any player accumulates 66 points, and the player with the lowest score wins. The simultaneous play and ascending initiative order in Six Nymphed require careful planning each round, not only of the card you play, but of what's left in your hand and how they all relate to the board state. Is the gap between your card and that row of four small enough that another player won't sneak in between and force you to scoop the row? When does it make sense to dump a super high value card to effectively cap a row? Is this the right moment to play my four and scoop a low bullhead row, taking that small point hit to avoid a larger one? At every turn, the board composition feels like it's screwing you over. And if it doesn't, rest assured somebody will play a card to make sure it does. It's a game filled with cries of son of a and aw, screw you, Daryl, punctuated by those miraculous rounds where you score zero in the face of everyone else's 20s and 30s. The tension is riveting, the highs are elating, and the lows are hilarious rather than punitive. Although it's ostensibly a filler, after a few plays, Six Nymphed reveals surprising layers of strategic crunchiness. At the start, I lost a lot of games. Then something clicked and I just got it, making it a game I'll play anytime on its own merits. The derision of fillers baffles me. 
In board games, the word filler is intended to define a shorter game used to fill the time between longer, more complex ones. Alternately, they're used to ramp up or wind down a game night. The negative connotation is born of insidious elitism, driving the idea that fillers aren't worthy of our time. That idea is built on the same careless, shaky foundation as Seattle's waterfront, and Sixnimped is the earthquake that sinks it. My name is Luke, and you can find my analogies breaking down on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple or on my website, PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming. It's Dinosaurs vs. Scientists in Raptor by designers Bruno Cathala and Bruno Fiduti, with art by Vincent Dutrait and published by Matigo in 2015. In Raptor, two players take on the role of either the Mama Raptor and her tiny baby raptors, or as a group of scientists that are determined to capture and study these relics of the Cretaceous era. Included in Raptor are 16 plastic miniatures, 5 adorable tiny baby raptors, an adult Mama Raptor, and 10 scientist miniatures. Each player also gets their own card deck, consisting of 9 cards with the values of, you guessed it, 1 through 9. Players draw three cards, choose one, and then simultaneously reveal their chosen card. Whoever played the card with the higher value gets to take as many actions as the difference between the values on the played cards. So, if you played a 3 and your opponent played a 9, your opponent will get 6 action points during their turn. Scientist players may use those action points to move their figurines around the board and attempt to sedate and capture baby raptors. As a raptor, players use their action points to move their adult raptor figure and take out those pesky scientists. Raptor players can also use their points to move their babies to safety. Each card has symbols that represent different effects. The player that played the lower value card carries out their card's effect. Scientists, for example, can call for reinforcements, use sleeping gas on dinos, and set fires that limit the raptor player's movements. Wait, what kind of scientists are these again? Raptor player decks have their very own thematic effects. Mother's Call, for example, allows the baby raptors to move across the board in order to get closer to the adult raptor figurine. This appearance and observation lets the raptor player move the adult raptor figure off the board while the scientist player carries out their actions. Once both players' actions and card effects have been resolved, they draw cards back up to three and a new round begins. Gameplay continues in this fashion until the scientists win by either capturing three baby raptors or by incapacitating the mother raptor. The raptor player wins by either guiding three of her little ones to safety or by clearing the board of scientists. At its heart, Raptors is a miniatures game. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not one of those table-hogging, wallet-draining, epic skirmish games you're likely to see being played at your friendly local game store. What Raptor is, however, is a 20-30 to 30 minute small-scale battle for two players, with asymmetric gameplay and tons of tactical and strategic decisions. Every turn has players thinking about the state of the board, weighing and reconciling what they want to do with what their hand allows them to do with what their opponent's card selection will let them do. It's not uncommon to have an essential action planned only to have your opponent play a lower value card that cancels your card's effect. So, instead of waking up two of your sleeping baby raptors, you might be outplayed by your opponent and be left with one or two action points that won't do you much good. But fear not, while raptor sounds like rock paper scissors with minis, being able to more or less gauge what cards your opponent will play balances out the gameplay quite nicely. The rulebook suggests that players keep their played cards arranged so that their values are visible to their opponent. Being able to see what cards your opponent has played allows you to select your card a bit more strategically. I also feel that having the discard piles as open information makes the game far more approachable and something you can easily teach and play on short notice. While the asymmetrical gameplay may seem a bit daunting to teach, 
Raptor includes handy double-sided player mats that detail the Raptor and scientists' different actions and card effects. And the Raptor looks great on the table. The tiny dinos and scientists, the small jungle or desert battlefield littered with tiny cardboard boulders, it's all very eye-catching. Vincent Dutrait's card artwork looks like something out of a colorful storybook with vivid action scenes that tell quite the story. As with most asymmetric games, balance is a concern. I've played Raptor dozens of times and I've noticed that the scientists tend to win more than the Raptors, but I'm not entirely convinced that the game is unbalanced. I will say however that playing as a Raptor feels more challenging than playing as a scientist, so if you're teaching the game to new players, definitely consider playing as a Raptor. Besides, with each game of Raptor being 20 minutes or so, you can easily switch roles and play again. Overall, Raptor is an easy to teach skirmish game with delightful production value and some very nice art design. If you're ever in between games at your local game cafe, or if you and a friend find yourselves waiting for other players to arrive, give Raptor a chance. I highly recommend it to those who are looking for a quick miniatures game with a little bite to it. My name is John Gonzalez and I can't believe I did that whole review without any Jurassic Park references. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Book of Nerds. That's B-O-O-K-O-F-N-E-R-D-S. You've been listening to The Five By, the fast and friendly podcast by people who love board games. You can follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Five By Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at fivebygames.com. From all of us at The Five By, Thanks for listening. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.